So if you haven't yet, open up to 1 Kings 15. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 15 in that chapter. That's where we'll begin. We'll see sort of a, a high-level overview of Asa's reign there. And then we'll shift over to 2 Chronicles chapter 14 and, and part of 15, and that's where we'll get some more of the details fleshed out from Asa's reign. So 1 Kings 15, starting in verse 8, And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa his son became king in his place. So in the twentieth year of Jeroboam, the king of Israel, Asa began to reign as king of Judah. He reigned forty-one years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. And Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father. He also put away the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all the idols which his fathers had made. He also removed Makkah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. And Asa cut down her horrid image and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. He brought into the house of the Lord the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils. So there's the 30,000-foot the view of Asa's reign, and it's a pretty amazing one. So some personal info about Asa as we get started here and see this, his reforms is he was a young king. Now, some of the kings were given their ages when they begin to reign. We're not given that for Asa, but his grandfather, Rehoboam, was 58 when he died. And his son, Abijam, whom we learned about last week, began to reign. So that means when Abijam took over, he was somewhere probably in his mid to late 30s. He only reigned for three years. So when Asa takes over, Abijam was maybe in his late 30s. So Asa is a young king. He's in his teens when he becomes king. First time this has happened in Israel. So he's, he's young. This is interesting to note as we see some of the, the actions that he takes. We also know that he reigned for 41 years. That's the longest king to reign to date. There will be others later that are slightly longer, but Saul and David and Solomon all reigned for 40 years each. Then we had Rehoboam, 17 years, and Abijam only three. So Asa's 41-year reign will be the longest to date in Israel. And his mother is, is interesting. His mother is listed here as Makkah, the daughter of Abishalom. For those who were paying attention last week, you'll notice that that is the same mother listed for Abijam. Well, how did Abijam and his son Asa have the same mother? Well, Asa was raised by his grandmother. So apparently his mother died at a young age. He's raised by his grandmother, Makkah. And that will be an important factor as, as we see later on. And so the summary we're given here is Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father. Doing what is right is, is a good thing in and of itself, but the fact that the appendage like David, his father, is put there speaks directly to Asa's heart. His heart was wholly devoted to following God and God alone. That's what defined David's reign. He wasn't perfect. We all know about his, his murder of Uriah the Hittite, his adultery with Bathsheba, but his heart was always devoted only to following God. That's what defined his reign, and, and Asa apparently is cut from the same cloth. So that's, that's a great overall summary of a king's reign, but what did he do that gives him this rare description? Well, we're given several things here in, in this first part of chapter 15. The first one is that Asa removed the wrong types of worship. First part of verse 12, it says, he also put away the male cult prostitutes from the land. Now, if you remember two weeks ago when we studied Rehoboam, he instituted a level of idolatry that had not been seen in Israel up to that point, and part of that was Ritual cult prostitution. And Asa comes along, his grandson, and says, we're not doing that anymore. And so he gets rid of the wrong 
types of worship. That wouldn't be the only one, but that's the example. Second, we see he removed the wrong objects of worship. That's the second half of verse 12. And he removed all the idols which his fathers had made. Now, that is speaking most likely specifically of the idols set up in Jerusalem and probably even in the king's palace because it specifically says the idols that his fathers had made, Abijam and Rehoboam. So Asa begins cleaning house at a young age as a young king by taking down all the idols that are in the king's palace in Jerusalem itself, the ones that his father specifically had set up. You remember Solomon, at the end of his reign, built temples to false gods, and then Rehoboam and Abijam just took that and, and went even further with it. Asa begins to reverse that process. Now, verse 14 says he wasn't able to completely remove all of them. The high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, his heart was wholly devoted to the Lord. So two and a half generations of idolatry is not going to disappear overnight, but Asa is moving in the right direction. And then we see that he removed authorities leading to wrong worship. This is interesting. In verse 13, he removed Makah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. Now, Makah had been around for a while now. She was Rehoboam's wife, Abijam's mother, Asa's grandmother. She's, she's been the, the long-running member in the palace court, has a lot of influence, no doubt, and Asa cuts her out. He says, sorry, Grandma, I know you raised me. I appreciate that, but, but you're taking us in the wrong direction. He wasn't content to remove just the, the types and objects of worship, but anyone, especially in a position of authority, even his own grandmother, was subject to, to his continued desire to push for pure worship. Now, it's interesting what he does with her image. It says that she had made a horrid image as an Asherah. That word in the original language, horrid, is extremely strong. It literally means to shudder. And it's used two different ways in the Old Testament. It means to shudder either from fear or to shudder from revulsion. You see that in Psalm 55, verse 4. The psalmist says, My heart is in anguish within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me, and here's our word, and horror has overwhelmed me. In that verse, we see it used really in both ways, both fear and revulsion. And so whatever this was, it was worse than the common idol. And it was set up in Jerusalem, potentially even in the king's palace, and Asa does an interesting thing with it. We're told Asa cut down her horrid image and burned it at the brook Kidron. Now, in the Chronicles account, which we're not going to turn to yet, it gives us one extra piece of information. He cut it down, he burned it, he ground it to powder, and then he threw it in the river Kidron, which is in the valley just east of the Temple Mount. This is looking north to south. You can see the Temple Mount there. So there's the valley of Kidron that runs in between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. There used to be a river that runs through it. Most of that has been diverted now. But this is an interesting thing. So Asa cuts it down, burns it, grinds it to powder, throws it in the river. Why that particular set of activities? We'll see that in a moment. So the fourth thing he does is restore right worship. That's verse 15. He brought into the house of the Lord the dedicated things of his father and his own dedicated things, silver and gold and utensils. So Abijam had received some, some plunder, some valuables from his war with Jeroboam that Edwin led us through last week. But Abijam apparently kept them for himself. They're still in the king's palace. We're going to see that Asa receives some plunder from a war as well. And Asa takes both of those things. And unlike his father, he says, no, this, this valuables, these, these plunder we got from the war is not mine. This belongs to the temple. And the stuff that my father kept for himself, that's wrong. That belongs to the temple. 
You remember Shishak came under Rehoboam and emptied the temple of all of its valuables. The, the temple was intended to house a treasury that took care of the priests and all the things needed to keep up the worship of Yahweh. It was emptied, and apparently the weight of the empty temple weighed on Asa's heart. So he says, no, not only do we have to get rid of the idols, we've got to start restoring the right way to worship our God. A pretty impressive start for a teenage king. Personal reforms here. He begins in his own family, in his own house in Jerusalem, correcting the mistakes of his father and grandfather. But we see that he doesn't stop there. So turn over to 2 Chronicles 14. We'll be here for the rest of of the lesson. We're going to see that not only did Asa begin in, in his own personal sphere with personal reforms, but he moved that into corporate reforms. 2 Chronicles 14, beginning in verse 1. So Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and his son Asa became king in his place. Here's a new piece of information. The land was undisturbed for ten years during his days. Asa did good and right in the sight of the Lord his God, for he removed the foreign altars and high places, tore down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherim, and here we go, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. So he begins in his own personal reforms, and then he spreads that to national reform. Right? Note that there is no separation of church and state here. The king decrees, here is how we're going to worship. It's going to be God and God alone, the God of our fathers. Right? No separation of church and state. As Americans, that makes us a little, we get a little tingly about that. But Asa was correct. This is what God meant for his people to be. It was meant to be a theocracy. God was intended to be king. Back in Exodus 19, before the people ever went into the land, God, through Moses, says this to the people, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom. God says, you're my kingdom, I'm the king, I'm going to use people to administer it, but I'm the king. Asa says, we're going back to that. No one's worshiping idols here. He decrees they will worship Yahweh. But not only that, he doesn't say, so kind of figure it out and, and worship Yahweh however you want. There in verse 4, he says, we're going to worship Yahweh, and he commanded them to observe the law and the commandment. This is a reference to the Mosaic law and then the writings that followed. Now, the Mosaic law had to be hand-copied by every king that took the throne of Israel. Deuteronomy 17, 18, when God is giving instructions to the people again before they ever enter the promised land, he says, you're going to ask for a king, and here's some rules that govern how the king ought to operate, and this is one of them. Deuteronomy 17, 18, now it shall come about when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. This was a requirement. They had to copy down the entire Mosaic law. Why? Well, first of all, so that they had their own copy, right? No copy machines or printing presses back then. This way the king had his own copy to study throughout his reign. But also in the process of writing it, that's going to cement it into his head in a way that just reading or listening won't. And it was under the, the guidance of the Levitical priests to make sure that he was copying and interpreting correctly. Now, we can be pretty certain that David did this, right? All through the Psalms, you see how much he loved God's law. I mean, go back and read Psalm 119, and every other verse is about how beautiful the law is and how wonderful God's precepts are. 
David loved the law. No doubt he wrote his own copy. Solomon likely did as well because the beginning of his reign, he was wholly devoted to the Lord. Whether or not Rehoboam and Ace or Abijam did, we don't know. We're not told. But even if they did it, it was clearly just a check in the box. It had no impact on their relationship to God. But for Asa, apparently it did. Asa copied it, and this is how he gets his information as a young teenage king with an idolatrous dad, an idolatrous grandfather, and an idolatrous grandmother raising him. Despite that family situation, Asa walks out of that and says, no, we're going back to the law because he studied it himself. We, we can see this in several ways, but I think one of the most interesting one is, remember when I said it, what he did with his grandmother's idol? It was kind of bizarre and specific. Cut it down, burn it, grind it to powder, throw it in a river. Why would he do that? Well, it's a proof that he knew the law. Back in Exodus 32, we're told what Moses does when he comes down off of Mount Sinai. Remember, he comes down the first time, he has the Ten Commandments, but what are the people doing at the base of the mountain? Worshiping the golden calf. Listen to what Moses did to the golden calf in Exodus 32.20. Moses took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. (laughs) Where do you think Asa got that? He knows the law. He's read it, studied it, knows it backwards and forwards, and he takes that as an example. He says, if that was good for Moses, it's good for me. He knew the law. What's the application to us? Well, it's not a big jump. Asa knew the word of God intimately and valued it. He spent time in it clearly, not just copying it out for himself, but reading it and rereading it and seeking understanding and wisdom from it. We're going to see that he also knew the writings of his great-grandfather Solomon and his great-great-grandfather David. We see those examples as well. But, But he knew it. Do we study our Bible that way? If we were in that same kind of family upbringing, would our current Bible study habits allow us to make the kinds of decisions that Asa did? Or are we content to let someone else do the work? And we're blessed to be in this church with the kind of elders and leaders and teachers that we have here. But it can make us lazy in some instances. When you have someone like Tom, who is putting all the work into expositing the word and does such a phenomenal job of it, it can kind of cause us to go, oh, he, he does a better job than me anyway, so you know, I'm not, I don't really have, need to read it. I'm just going to go on Sundays and let Tom explain it to me. And, and that's good. We should do that. But that's only a piece. We have to be studying it ourselves. Asa had no one like that, but because of his personal study, he was still able to find a way to, to be a man after God's own heart like David. But not only did he know it, he was willing to pay a personal cost to obey what he found there. Now think about this. He's a young teenage king in the midst of an idolatrous court, and the first thing he does is say, no more cult prostitution. Now that's going to be an unpopular move, right? And a time when he should be strengthening his own position in court, he makes a very unpopular move. But he was good with that. He removed his own grandmother from the court, right? I mentioned the fact that she would have had a lot of influence because she's been in it for a long time. And he says, no, you're not even immune, Grandma. You're doing it wrong, and I'm not okay with that, and you got to go. Now, not only was that going to create him enemies within the court, right, her friends and her supporters, but think of the internal family strife that causes. His grandmother raised him, and he kicks her out. 
There's a personal cost there. But it was the right move. And he put his own wealth into the temple, right? His father Abijam had begun to, to repopulate the wealth that was lost under Rehoboam. And it's, Abijam kept it for himself. And Asa says, no, not only my dad's riches, but my own riches don't belong to us. They belong to God. And he sticks them in the temple. Asa was willing to pay a personal cost to obey the word. Are we? When we do study it or, or hear it taught to us, do we follow the parts that are convenient? Oh, I can get behind that. It doesn't cost me too much. Are we willing to obey the parts that are going to have a personal cost, whether that's relational, financial, or otherwise? Asa was willing to pay those costs. We'll see that God blessed him for it. So there's his righteous reforms. Not an easy act to follow. The next thing we're going to see is, is some responses. So in, in the next section that we're going to look at here in Second Chronicles, we're going to see God come and, and interact with his people in three different ways. And then we're going to see Asa respond. We get to see his verbal response twice and some speeches he gives and then an action of response in the third case. But I want you to watch what God is doing and how Asa responds here. So, so far we're off to a good start. The first thing we see God do with his people is God blesses Judah's faithfulness. And you saw there in 2 Chronicles 14, verse 1, the end of the verse says, And the land was undisturbed for ten years during his days. That's something that hadn't happened in the southern kingdom or, or the northern kingdom either, for that matter, since it split. Rehoboam and Jeroboam had conflict all of their reigns. Abijam and Jeroboam had conflict. We know that Rehoboam went to war with Egypt and lost. It's been 20 straight years of war. And under Asa, they have 10 years of peace. First time that's happened since the beginning of Solomon's reign. That's, that's impressive, but then we see in verses 6 and 7, he, meaning Asa, built fortified cities in Judah since the land was undisturbed, and there was no one at war with him during those years because the Lord had given him rest. For he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. The Lord gave them security. Not only that, but if you look at the very end of verse 7, it says, so they built and prospered. God blessed them not only with security, a lack of war, but with prosperity. Now security and prosperity ought to sound familiar. Two weeks ago when we studied Rehoboam, the, the kingdom in the beginning of his reign had both of those things, security and prosperity. But the way that they responded was in self-assurance, arrogance, and idol worship. And so God disciplined them. And if you recall, when God brought Shishak as a mode of discipline, what did God target in Rehoboam's reign? Their security and their prosperity. That's what he targeted. He took those away to show them they needed him. Well, now he has blessed Judah with the same thing, security and prosperity once again for 10 years. So our question now is, how will Asa respond? We saw how Rehoboam responded. How does Asa respond? Well, Asa acknowledges God's generosity, first off, whereas Rehoboam said, man, we're doing great. Look at us. We're good. Well, Asa says, no, it, it's not us. It's not my wisdom as a king. It's, it's not our shrewd politics. It's not our mighty army. So the reason that we have security and prosperity is because God gave it to us. Verse 7, he said, let us build these cities. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him and he has given us rest on every side. 
Asa understood where their prosperity and their security came from, and it wasn't him. He acknowledges God's generosity. But he doesn't just leave it there, right? Hey, thanks, God. That's awesome. Thanks for giving us a a good decade. Now we're going to kick back and take it easy. No, he goes to work. He takes the prosperity and the security that God has blessed the nation with and said, okay, what are we going to do with it? And so he says, let's build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. Now, again, if you recall, this is why we study these things in entire books. Rehoboam had built a bunch of fortified cities in the beginning of his reign. But what happened to all those fortified cities? Shishak wiped them out like a tidal wave. God brought Egypt and took down all of those fortified cities that they had put their confidence in. So Judah is undefended. And Asa says, okay, God's given us security and prosperity. It's time that we did something useful with it. So they go back to work and rebuild all those fortified cities that Shishak had destroyed. He went to work. Here again, we see an understanding of some of the writings that he had at the time. I mean, this sounds just like his great-grandfather Solomon in Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Right? Do the work while the time is good. Don't be lazy. Asa acknowledges God's prosperity and then gets to work with what God has given them. That was the first action in response. Next, we're going to see that God tests Judah's faithfulness. Now, it's all well and good to be faithful when things are going smoothly and seamlessly. They've had 10 years of rest. They're prospering. They're rebuilding. Things are going well. They're faithful in it, which is good. We're called to be faithful in the good times, but you never really know how you're going to respond in the bad times until they come. This is like being in the military, right? In the military, we train for the worst of times. You train for being in the heat of combat. Now, most of the time in the military, you don't spend there. You train, and you train, and you train, and you hope you're ready, and you think you're ready, but you never really know whether you're ready until, say, you're over Afghanistan in the middle of the night getting shot at by surface-to-air missiles. (laughs) Then you find out if you're ready, right? (laughs) Theoretically speaking, of course. That's how you know. It's when the trial comes, when the test is there. Then you know whether your training and your diligence paid off. So God's about to test Judah. He brings a trial to them. So we're going to continue in 1 Chronicles 14, beginning with verse 8. Now Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, bearing large shields and spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin, bearing shields and wielding bows. All of them were valiant warriors. Now Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and he came to Marisha. So Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up in battle formation in the valley of Zephatha at Marisha. So God determines to test Judah, and the way he determines to test them is with a foreign invader. Now Asa seems to have a pretty solid army. He's got over half a million men, 300,000 footmen and 280,000 archers. That's pretty solid. But then we meet Zerah, the Ethiopian. His army's bigger, where it says a million men in the NASB. The original language is literally a thousand thousands. That was their way of saying, we can't number this host. It's really, really big. So he was outmanned by at least two to one, maybe more than that. 
And they had 300 chariots. Now, that may not sound like a lot when you're talking about a million men. Okay, 300 chariots. But you've got to remember, in ancient warfare, the chariot was the equivalent of a tank. Right? You can line up thousands of men on a field, but if i got one tank and you've got 1,000 men, I'm betting on me. So the fact that they had 300 chariots and over a million men, Asa is way outclassed here. Now, who is this guy, Zara the Ethiopian? Don't think of modern-day Ethiopia. Rather, this term in this context means the land of Cush or the Arabian Peninsula. So there's two primary options of, of who Zara is. One would say it's a nomadic tribe living in, in the Arabian Peninsula. I think the more likely explanation is that this is really the, the army of Egypt. Zara is a mercenary general. This was not uncommon in the time for kings of, of nations to hire generals who were highly successful and use them to lead their armies. Given the number of men that are involved in this army and the fact that they had chariots, a nomadic tribe is less likely than the Egyptian army. So Zerah is labeled as an Ethiopian because he's not Egyptian, but he's leading the Egyptian army. So this is probably the army under Osorkon I. That was the king of Egypt that would follow Shishak, who we studied two years ago, or two weeks ago. So once again, the Egyptians have come to threaten Judah. Right? We saw God use them as an instrument of discipline under Rehoboam's reign, and, and he's chosen to do the same thing again. Now, under Rehoboam's reign, we know that, that there was short-term repentance there when Shishak came, and, and so he destroyed most of the fortified cities but didn't take out Israel. And so the question is, how is Asa going to respond here? What is Asa's battle plan? He's facing a massive army where he is outmanned and outclassed. So what's his battle plan? Verse 12, or verse 11, I'm sorry. Then Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. So help us, O Lord our God, for we trust in you and in your name have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. Asa's battle plan was to call on his God. He says, look, I'm not going to rely on my half a million men, although they're valiant and, and that's a pretty big army. I'm going to acknowledge God's power in this. And his prayer is chock full. I wish we could spend more time just on this prayer, but, but quickly, here's four aspects in this prayer we need to take note of. The first one is that he acknowledges God's strength. Right? He says, there is no one besides you to help. Two things are inherent in that statement. He said, first of all, you are powerful enough to help. And second of all, it's not like you're one of a couple options. You're it. You're the only one that can help me. He acknowledges God's strength. It's also interesting to note that, that he, he called out to the Lord his God. It was personal for Asa. It wasn't just the Lord our God, the nation's God. He called out to the Lord his God. I like the way... Matthew Henry puts it, he said, He that sought God in the day of his prosperity could with holy boldness cry to God in the day of his trouble and call him his God. Holy boldness. I like that. So first, Asa acknowledges God's strength. Then he acknowledges his own weakness. He said, There's no one besides you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. Now, I don't know about you, but I... If I were a general with a half a million valiant warriors under my charge, probably wouldn't consider myself having no strength. That seems like a pretty decent army to me. But Asa understands that it doesn't matter how many men I have. Whether Zara outclasses me or I outclass him, doesn't make a difference. 
ultimately, I'm not the one that's going to win the battle. Again, this ties directly back to his great-grandfather Solomon, Proverbs 21, 31. Solomon said, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Ace has probably read that. He knows that proverb. So facing Zerah, he says, I don't have any strength. It's not going to be me that wins this battle, God. It's going to be you. Acknowledges God's strength, acknowledges his own weakness. Then he acknowledges God's holy character. He says, for we trust in you. Now, in order to trust in somebody, they have to have proven some things to you. You don't just trust in some random stranger you've never met, right? This has to be someone you've known for a while. And during that relationship, they have to have proven certain characteristics to you in order to place your trust in them. Characteristics like faithfulness and reliability. They do what they say. Availability. They're there to help when I need it. Justice and wisdom, right? If you go to them or trust them, you need to know they're going to make good calls on your behalf. Availability. They're willing to help when you need them. Right? All these things have to be in place. Where did Asa get that? How did he know that his God was not only willing, but able, available, and faithful to help him in this circumstance? His study of the word. That's how he knew. It certainly wasn't from his family. That's how he knew. He trusts God's holy character. And fourth, he acknowledges God's holy authority. He says, we come in your name. He says, look, even as we enter the battlefield, whatever you want to do with this, God, we're representing you. I'm not representing me as king. We're not representing Judah as a nation. We're representing you. You're the one in control. You're the one that has the authority. We're on the battlefield, and you do what you will. But I love... At the very end, he says, but, but don't let these mere mortals win. Right. I mean, that, that's a valid thought, right? Hey, God, we're here in your name, so you want to uphold your glory? Okay, let's go to work. An awesome prayer. So what's the result? Verse 12, So the Lord routed the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, And so many Ethiopians fell that they could not recover, for they were shattered before the Lord and before his army. And they carried away very much plunder. They destroyed all the cities around Gerar, for the dread of the Lord had fallen on them. And they despoiled all the cities, for there was much plunder in them. They also struck down those who owned livestock, and they carried away large numbers of sheep and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. It's not even a battle. (laughs) Ace's battle plan is to cry out to God, and God says, Okay. And he shatters the foreign army. So they flee back to the south where they came from. Asa pursues them out of Judah into Philistine lands south of Judah. Not only do they destroy the army, but they plunder the Philistine lands that had been aiding the army on its march north. Now if you think about this, if this is the Egyptian army, this irony is is awesome. Under Rehoboam, the Egyptians came and remember Shishak took every bit of gold and valuables that Judah had to offer and took them to Egypt. When the Egyptian army comes back, they're carrying a lot of that with them, and now what happens? Asa takes it all back. But what's really happening is God took it as a means of discipline, and now as a means of Asa and the people's faithfulness, God says, okay, you can have it back. He returns their wealth to them as a reward for their faithfulness. An amazing test And Asa's acknowledgement of God's power, not his own, and relying on God for deliverance solely, 
is something we ought to be able to emulate. So we've seen God bless Judah's faithfulness and test it. And then the third act is God encourages Judah's faithfulness. Second Chronicles 15. So now they're returning to the north from this amazing victory. Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For many days Israel was without the true God and without a teaching priest and without law. But in their distress, they turned to the Lord God of Israel, and they sought him, and he let them find him. In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for many disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every kind of distress. But you be strong and do not lose courage, for there is reward for your work. So Asa and the victorious army are marching back north to Jerusalem, and a prophet shows up. Now, it seems to happen a lot in Kings, doesn't it? And if you remember, when we studied the opening of the book of Kings, we said that one of the links between the book of Kings and the New Testament is it exposes us to the roles of prophet, priest, and king. Right? Three separate roles here. All of them had certain duties and responsibilities, all of which would be combined into one man, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah in the New Testament. The prophets here, their main role is to help the human kings understand you are not the ultimate authority. Unlike the pagan kings around you who are at the, the top of the pyramid, you're not. God's in control. You're merely administering his kingdom. And so more often than not, they come to correct a king's bad behavior. All right, we've seen this numerous times when Nathan came to confront David about the sin with Uriah and Bathsheba. We saw that uh, Abijah came to confront Solomon and tell him that the kingdom was going to be taken from him because of his idolatry. We saw Shemaiah the prophet come to Rehoboam and explain that Shishak was there because of their idolatry. So the prophets usually are correcting a bad king's behavior, but this is unique. This is the first time we've seen a prophet come and say, hey, you're doing a good job. Keep it up. That's unusual. So the first two verses there, verse 1 and 2, Asa comes and, and says, reminds them of a covenant reminder says, look, you need to just recall, remember, while you're going through this, that, that this is how God relates with his people. If you seek him, he will let you find him, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now, this wasn't new. This was a reiteration of what they had been told from the beginning. David, on his deathbed, when he was giving Solomon instruction, when he was about to become king, said this in 1 Chronicles 28, 9, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Word for word, what the prophet here is telling Asa. If you recall, when Shemaiah came to, to Rehoboam as he was huddling in Jerusalem, afraid of Shishak outside the walls, he said the same thing. Look, that foreign king is here because you forsook God, so God has forsaken you to to those consequences. So it's not new, it's just a reminder of the covenant relationship. Reminds us of that verse we all know, seek ye first the kingdom of God. That's what he's saying. Then the prophet, in verses 3 through 6, describes a time when Israel was not faithful. And in the original language, this is interesting, there are no verbs with tenses in these verses. So we don't know whether he's talking in past tense or in future tense. 
So some would say he's referring to the time of the judges, right? He talks about Israel having no priest or law, doing their own thing. Right? That reminds us of Judges 17.6. For there was no king in Israel in those days, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. But then he describes them in their distress, returning to God and God saving them. Certainly that cycle happened multiple times in the time of the judges. He would raise up a local judge. They would cry out to him in distress, and, and he would help them. So it could apply to that. Some would say this is a future prophecy, and it applies to the coming exile, right? That's where this is leading up to. Israel will go into exile first in 722 B.C., followed by Judah in the south between 605 and 586. So they would say, no, this is talking about the exile. Either way, the point is the same. God is reminding them, look, if you're following me and seeking me, I will bless you. But if you forsake me, it's going to be hard. There's only one thing that comes from not following me carefully, God says. Disastrous circumstances and divine discipline. That's what he's either reminding them of or foretelling or perhaps both. So he says, look, just keep that in mind. And then verse 7 is the encouragement. But... You, so he's saying in opposition to that, that's not where you are. But you be strong and do not lose courage. Again, he's saying right now you're doing good. You have courage. You're being faithful. Don't give that up. Into verse 7, for there is reward for your work. So Asa here is, is given a reminder. Look, this is a covenant. It requires your obedience and faithfulness. If you leave the covenant, it's going to get tough. But, but keep doing what you're doing because there's a reward coming if you stay this course. That's a great covenant reminder. So, again, the question is, how does, how does Asa respond? Verse 8, 1 Chronicles 5, or 2 Chronicles 15. Now, when Asa heard these words and the prophecy which Azariah, the son of Oded, the prophet, spoke, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had captured in the hill country in Ephraim. He then restored the altar of the Lord, which was in front of the porch of the Lord, he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who resided with him, for many defected to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they assembled at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of Asa's reign. They sacrificed to the Lord that day 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. They entered into the covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. Moreover, they made an oath to the Lord with a loud voice, with shouting, with trumpets, and with horns. All Judah rejoiced concerning the oath, for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly, and he let them find him. So the Lord gave them rest on every side. Well, that's quite a response. That is the correct way to respond to the encouragement that Asa is given through Azariah the prophet. Again, he doesn't sit back and go, okay, we're doing good. Time to slide for a little while. No. He redoubles his efforts to maintain pure worship and to make sure that the people are worshiping only the God of their fathers, the one true God. And we're told about the reform, so now he expands. He had, he had already instituted Yahweh-only worship in Judah. Well, now he expands that to the, the new territories they've taken over, both from the war with Jeroboam and, and those from the recent war. He says, look, you guys too have to do this. He continues the reforms in Jerusalem. We're told that he repaired the altar in front of the temple. Apparently, the altar in the temple was suffering from disuse. It should have been being used every single day, and clearly that has not been happening because it needs repairs. But he does that. He gathers the people together, 
original Judah and expanded Judah, all the defectors that are coming because they're, they're looking at his success going, yeah, God's fueling that. I want to be part of that. So they're flooding down from Israel in the north, and he gathers everyone together in this, this national convocation, and they have the first national sacrifice since Solomon dedicated the temple over 60 years ago. They sacrifice sheep and oxen from the spoils of war. Again, they dedicate those to God, not keeping them to themselves. This is an amazing response. We see a couple important things. First, they commit to being fully and solely focused in verse 12. They entered the covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and soul. They're serious. This is not like the short-term repentance that we saw with Rehoboam when he was being threatened by Shishak, and as soon as the, the enemy left, he goes back to his old ways. No, they're serious. With their whole heart and soul, they say, yeah, we've been doing this wrong. We're recommitting to follow the covenant of our fathers. And second of all, in verse 13, they, they pledge not only to personal reform for themselves, but to hold one another accountable. Verse 13 almost seems a, a little bit aggressive. Whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel should be put to death, whether small or great, man or woman. Right? Again, we kind of go, eh, I, don't, I don't know about that. Maybe that's a little too far. No. Asa knows exactly what he's doing because he's studied the law. Exodus 22.20 He who sacrifices to any god other than to the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. That word utterly destroyed means put to death. And if that wasn't strict enough, Deuteronomy 13.6 If your brother, your mother's son, or your son or daughter, or the wife you cherish, entice you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, you shall surely kill him your hand shall be first against him to put him to death. God is serious about this. He tells them when you go into these lands and there's pagan gods there, if your kids or your spouse start worshiping other gods, you're the first one that's going to bring it up and throw the first stone. He's serious. Sometimes I think we, we have a little too light view of how God views sin. His view of sin hasn't changed from now to when he wrote those words. We just thankfully have a, an alternate outcome. But, but Asa knew this. He knew these laws. And so he says, we're going to do that. Not only are we pledging ourselves to be wholly devoted to God, but we're going to hold each other accountable and make sure that we're following in, in God's explanation. Jesus himself had the same point in Mark 9, 43 said, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having two hands to go into hell. Again, Jesus isn't specifically speaking about mutilating yourself. He's saying drastic measures are required in order to maintain holy worship and devotion to God. He said, be willing to get serious. So there's the third action of God in Asa's response. So, so where's the application for us? I think there's one out of each of three of those. First of all, Asa knew God's heart, and he gave him praise in the good times, right? We saw this in the first example. Things are going well for 10 years, but Asa doesn't take it upon himself to say, man, I'm a good king. He said, no, God is a good king, and that's why things are going well. Do we give God credit for when things are going well in our lives, or do we only call out when we're having trouble? Sometimes it's harder to, to praise him in the good times because we get self-reliant. We need to give him credit and then work diligently. It's not time to slack. We're told life is like a, a race. It's a marathon. You've got to keep moving. 
That's why we have Sabbaths. Second, Asa knew God's character, not just his heart, that he was a generous and kind God, but he knew his character, and that allowed him to make the right call when he was being faced with overwhelming odds in a hopeless situation. Is that how we respond? Do we read this not just with a, an eye of getting information, maybe some history, some chronology, some good stories? When we read this, it ought to be to determine God's character. Who is the God I am serving? What is he like? What is he about? Because it's that, it's the character of God from here that is going to allow us in the difficult circumstances to fully rely on him and to have the same battle plan Asa did. God, you're it. It has to come from here, and it has to be because we're reading it with an eye towards who is my God, not just let me get some good information so I sound smart at my home fellowship. Who is my God? Asa knew the character of his God. Do we? And finally, he understood how serious God took idolatry. Asa had read the law. He understood God's view of sin. And then he acted upon it. And he said, look, we need to serve him, serve him alone, and be willing to hold one another accountable, and when necessary, take drastic steps to ensure the proper worship of of a holy God. You and I have the opportunity to respond in the same way that Asa did, and, and the parallels are, are amazing. We, we see that they responded by renewing a covenant that they had already made. right? So they re-enter into the covenant, they affirm it and say, yes, we're going to do that. Well, you and I can do the same thing, only we have a new covenant. We got a chance to celebrate that last week in communion. They had one covenant, we have a new one. Matthew 26, 17 says, And Jesus took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. Saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You and I have a covenant that we can ascribe to as well. It's a better one. It's a full, a full and complete one, unlike the incomplete covenant that Asa had. We have that opportunity We also see that they offered sacrifices. You and I ought to do the same thing. Our sacrifices, thankfully, just look a little different than killing animals. Romans 12.1 I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual service of worship. The way we live our lives is our sacrifice. Hebrews 13.15 Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Our praise of our God is a sacrifice. Having entered into the covenant, like Asa and and his nation here, we ought also to offer sacrifices to our God. And finally, we can receive the same reward they did. We're told in the end of that, in verse 15, so the Lord gave them rest on every side. They had ten more years of rest following this. Now, for for Asa and and the nation of Judah, that was great. That was an amazing blessing. But you and I are promised way more rest than 10 years. It's an eternity. That's what God offers in the new covenant. You know Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Isaiah talks about the prince of peace, and he says of the increase of his government, the prince of peace, and of the increase of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, we're seeing that line traced now, He will establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
eternal peace. Revelation 22, I won't go there, but describes New Jerusalem and the peace that we'll see in that. That's what we ought to be offering to God. There's, there's two groups here this morning. Right? Here in this class, Bereans, if you have already entered that covenant with Christ, if you are following him and saying, you are my God, I ascribe to a theocracy, then, then this is your promise. This is the same encouragement to you that it was to Asa. God says it's a covenant, and I'm faithful to uphold my end of the bargain. The new covenant you entered into through my son is everlasting and unchangeable. No one can take you out of it. But we're called to offer sacrifices, to live appropriately, to worship purely and only God. The other option is you're not part of that group. For those who haven't yet understood how seriously God deals with rejection of him and, and with sin and all the forms of idolatry that we all express, then you need to understand that the only thing coming for you is like he reminded them in Azariah's prophecy, rejection of God results in dif- difficult circumstances and ultimately divine judgment. It's not where you have to be. That's why we have examples like Asa and God's word so we can understand what he offers and his character and nature. I pray that that would be where your heart would lend today. Let's pray. Heavenly and gracious God, you are an amazing God. You are holy and just. You do not abide evil and idolatry in all the forms where our own hearts and minds seek pleasure and fulfillment in anything but you. May we understand how serious a charge that is. Father, you are also a gracious and a generous God, and we see that throughout every page of the word that you have generously given to us. You offer us opportunities to follow you. You give us the tools we need to do that. May we, like like Asa and Judah here, commit ourselves to following you through good times and through difficult times. May we commit to being serious about it and to holding one another accountable so that we might be a people when we offer sacrifices that are pleasing aromas to you. May our worship be that which is pleasing. We pray that for today as we enter into the rest of our Sabbath. Pray that you would be with those headed to the sanctuary and, and with Tom as he leads us. Father, we just thank you for this church and the fact that we have others around us who can, who can instruct, who can hold accountable, who can encourage, and who can correct when necessary. We thank you for that privilege because it is a privilege. And we thank you for who you are, for your characteristics. We, may we praise those and focus on those as we move throughout the rest of our week. We give you the glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.